Hello and welcome to It's Lit, where all things literary live at the root. I'm Maisha Kai, Managing Editor of The Glow Up, and today we're joined by comedian and actress Gina Yashere. Now, Gina began her career as a stand-up comedian in the UK, and since hopping across the pond to the US, she has gone on to become an accomplished TV writer and actress as well, writing and performing on CBS's sitcom Bob Hart's Abishola. Gina has also produced three comedy specials and has the acclaim of being the only British comedian to appear on Deaf Comedy Jam. She's also well known as the British correspondent on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Now, Gina has added author to her resume as well, having published her first memoir, Cack Handed, which came out in June of this year. I had such a fun time talking with Gina. She is so passionate about storytelling and so engaging. I actually listened to her book on audiobook and it was awesome to hear her read the whole thing in her own voice. It was just absolutely fascinating to hear her talk about how Bob Hart's Abishola came about and why, despite her unique Nigerian-British upbringing, she feels really strongly that her memoir is for everyone. And I'd have to agree with that. So with that introduction, I give you my conversation with Gina Yashere. Gina, welcome to It's Lit. Why, thank you for having me. <laughs> it is our pleasure. We've been looking forward to this for a while. Oh, yes. You know, uh, we have uh, schedules being what they are. It's, it's, it's exciting to get you on here. We know Cat Candy came out in June. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're getting to it a little later than we would have liked, but we're going to have a fun discussion about today. But before we do, we have a little ritual here at It's Lit because this is a podcast about Black writers, Black thinkers, Black books. We like to ask all of our guests, was there a book or books that was particularly inspiring to you, that kind of like broke something open for you, made you think about things differently, or in any way inspired you to write? Ooh, that's a hard one. Uh, (laughs) I never thought I was ever going to write a book, so my attention span is too short for that. So (laughs) I, I, I only was inspired to write by someone offering me a book deal, and I was like, oh, okay, let's, let's try this. Um, I tell you, a book that made me uh, think differently was a book called Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. Uh huh. Because I, I tend to read because I do comedy and I'm traveling, I'm on tour so much. I tend to read mainly fiction, so that was my first foray into non and what that, that I truly remember that made me think differently because it talks about how you know people's first impressions and how people are judged immediately on you know sex age race the the the, the name they have so that was that was an eye opener for me that book i have not had anybody reference malcolm gladwell yet but i i think that that is that is a really important book especially in the context of your book yeah. which you know you may read a lot of fiction but obviously this is a non-fiction book this yeah. is your memoir and part of your ongoing story yeah And, you know, I think that that conversation, you know, about, I mean, I guess we can just shorten it by talking about implicit bias is such a huge part of the story that you're telling in Cack Handed, you know, being the child of immigrants in Britain, what it means to be African within the larger Black diaspora, if you will. Yeah. And then also what it means to be Black and British or African and British 
in your your country of heritage, Nigeria. I mean, all of that was so intriguing to me. You know, but obviously you're, you know, you are acting, you're you're very active. This is not like some end of the life, end of life memoir. <laughs> this is like a, a very in progress memoir. <laughs> exactly. So uh, you know, you say you were compelled to do this because someone offered you a book deal, which hey, keep it real. That is that is that's actually a better well, than I think than most of it was Instagram. <laughs> You know, it started with uh, hashtag throwback Thursdays. Okay. And I sort of post an old picture and then tell the story behind the picture. So I posted pictures of my days when I was working for Otis Building Elevators and just, and I tell the story of of what, how horrible life was as the first female engineer with the company. So I do stories Mm -hmm. every week with throwback Thursdays and then people just come on and go, oh my gosh, you know, the stories are so interesting. You should write a book. You should write a book. So I was like, eh, maybe, but I don't know. But I started saving the posts in a folder just in case I ever got around to it. But yeah, this is how the universe works. Uh, my friend, Michelle Buteau, also a fantastic comedian, blown up right now. Yes. She got a yes. book deal and she calls me up and she goes, bitch, my uh, lit agent loves you and he wants to meet you. And he brought us together. So I met up with him in New York because I was living in New York at the time. And um, he was like, yeah, I've been following you. I really love what you do. And and I think you've got a book in you. And around the same time, uh, Tracy Sherrod, editor at Amistad Books, which is a subsidiary of HarperCollins, had also emailed my manager going, "Um, I really like Gina's work. Would she be interested in writing a book? So the universe just was like, you're writing a book. And that's how it came about. You know, God bless Michelle Buteau, who we've also had here on the podcast for her book. We loved her, too. One of the most fun that we've had (laughs) in the year that we've been doing this was Michelle Buteau on the podcast because she's hilarious. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And she's also also really real. And, you know, I was really struck when I was reading her book, you know, and I love this is one of the things I love about podcasting is that you find all these commonalities between yourself and your guests. And, you know, in your case, you know, you're telling a very, very specific story about this particular identity and growing up in a certain time. <laughs> but, um, you know, I was I was kind of cracking up because true confession, I actually went and looked up your birthday because I was like, I feel some kind of kinship with this person. You and I are exactly one year and 10 days apart. And so all those things you were talking no about, with like attention span and like all these Gen X references you were making. I'm also a former New Yorker who was there in the nineties. And I was like, Oh my God, this is so funny. Like I was sitting there, like I get all these references. Wow, this is really funny. That's fantastic. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so I was totally tickled um, by this book. You know, I should tell you another person we uh, have recently spoken to on the podcast is Yvonne Orji. There you go. So all, all your homies have been on the podcast. Yeah. You here. But again, we've been seeing this moment. I think in the last few years where, you know, we've had these amazing talents. I mean, not like those talents didn't always exist. They always did. But I think coming to the forefront, this amazing wave of talents from, you know, who grew up in Britain or grew up in America, but are of African descent. And so we're finally getting this different lens into what that identity looks like. Mm. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, I was really, I love that you highlighted this kind of weird combative relationship that happens between Africans and African-Americans and people from the Caribbean and, you know. Classic divide and conquer techniques. 
I mean, it's very effective, right? Like we see it all the time. The colonizer was an evil genius. <laughs> <laughs> very much so. Um, you know, in in writing this book, who who did you feel like? I mean, obviously you're writing it for a book deal. I'm writing it for yourself, I would guess. But who did you feel like you were writing to? I felt like I was just, I mean, I wanted to get the story out there. And I also, it was, I mean, it's for everybody, obviously, I want as many people to read as possible. Uh, but it was kind of a love letter to my mum because I grew up very resentful of her strictness. But as, you know, looking back, I, you know, and telling her story, I was like, oh, wow, I realised what she was suffering, what she went through, the the absolute terror she must have, you know, felt every day being in a country that is kind of alien to her and being on her own, raising kids, in a, in, a, in a country where we routinely got spat on by skinheads and chased, you know, so it was the first and foremost, it was a love letter to her saying, I understand now, looking back, I understand. I hated it when I was a kid, but I understand. <laughs> and then secondly, it was a love letter to black people. I was like, look, this is what we've come through. And despite everything that we've suffered, we, we are great people. Do not let... <laughs> others make you believe that you're not we've come through a lot and despite what we've suffered and we, and again we are not just what we've suffered we we are we are great people before we were great people during and we'll continue to be great people um, but I wanted to say look we are one people no matter where we came from no matter where we were dispersed to and stolen and taken away to we we all still survived we still thrive and We've, we've got to come together and remember that, you know, all these differences that have, that we have have been invented and created and by other people, you know. So it was kind of a yeah, love letter to my mom, love letter to us. <laughs> you know, and I love that you just said, you know, obviously our stories are so much bigger than the worst things that yeah. have happened to us uh, as a people. Um, but one of the things I was struck by here, you know, I mean, you are best known as a comedian and now as, you know, a screenwriter, a producer, but this is a story that also, I mean, does it shy away from trauma, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and a lot of it was incredibly striking. I mean, in, in your spinning of it, you know, some of it was very funny. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who would have thought I'd be able to turn my suicide attempt at 16 into a stand-up routine? But listen, I <laughs> listen. And, you know, this discussion of, as we call him, the step bastard. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, these are not these are not easy stories to tell. And no. I mean, I guess, you know, it might be a bit of a ridiculous question. because I think we all know that, you know, pathos and comedy always kind of go hand in hand. It's that ability. I mean, that's what makes you all so talented, this ability to do this. But how was that kind of excavating trauma for, in, in this format, I guess? You know what? It was cathartic. Mm. You know, especially when talking about the step bastard, like he was my mother's last and final husband and he was a horrible, evil man. And he mistreated us horribly as children. And, you know, I thought I'd moved on from that. I thought I'd forgotten about it. But then when I was writing the chapter, all the anger and hatred and resentment came bubbling up as I wrote the chapter about him. Like it happened yesterday. And I was like, oh my holy shit, I've been carrying this weight on my chest since childhood, and I didn't even know I was carrying it. It's it, it, it's only as I wrote it and I felt it all coming up 
And then it kind of dispersed after, it, you know, I got it all out of me, all the fury. But I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is amazing. I had no idea. And so that's getting all the stuff out, all my feelings out, because I've never, uh, I'm going to admit something, I've never had therapy, you know, never had it. I'm from an African family and, and, and I find it, and I, and I was brought up with the, you never tell people our business, never tell people. So I've still got that in my head and, and I've, I've talked about going to therapy on many occasions. And one day I will, because I feel like I need to, but I never have. So I've never spoken, you know, me and my brothers have talked about it. You know, but we've never delved deeper into, you know, how we felt and whatever. We just talked about what a shit this man was. So, yeah, this was almost a form of therapy, just talking through it and, 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 and reliving the story and reliving how I felt. And, and yeah, so it was it was a pretty amazing experience writing it in, in the most horrendous of way because the anger was just there. And I was so, I had to put it down for a bit because I just wanted to, I, he's dead, but I wanted to kill him all over again. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know that that's an easy thing to admit. I think sometimes we, you know, uh, when we're writing these autobiographical pieces, there's this subconscious desire to appear more virtuous than we are, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, to to cast ourselves in some some more uh, thoughtful light, of, you know, like, oh, I, I'm so enlightened and, you know, yes, I made mistakes. But, you know, I, I loved this book because you didn't do that. You very much, I, and, and I, full confession, I listened to it as an audiobook, ah. which I felt was particularly fitting since you are who you are, yeah. and, you know, so, you know, I got all the accents, I got your, your inflection, you know, I, I got a sense of you, which is always helpful for the podcast. Yeah. But, um, I was really intrigued by the fact that you also did something that I don't know that a lot of people would dare to do, which is to talk about, you know, Nigeria and the country of your parents' birth, you know, um, in, in these very, like, in these very real terms, mm-hmm. in terms of feeling rejected, mm-hmm. feeling um, unwanted there. And this, and this parallel also that obviously happens on your second trip when you encounter your father, your birth father. Yeah. Um, and, and these kind of, I, I thought that was really artful, like this layering of feeling rejected by the country of your descent and encountering someone who who is like the genesis of any abandonment issues yeah. you might have. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. that's deep. Yeah. <laughs> um, but were, did you have any trepidation about talking about Nigeria like that? Yeah, because, yes, because... As a comedian, I've talked about my culture a lot. I talk about my family. You know, I built a lot of my career on talking about my Nigerian culture because I was different from all the other... When I started in England, a lot of the comedians were from uh, Caribbean descent, Jamaican, Beijing, Trinidad, and that was a lot of the comedy. So I, to differentiate myself, I was like, well, I'm not going to try and do what you guys do because I'm not from the Caribbean. I'm going to just talk about my culture. And that's what differentiated me and kind of catapulted me because I stood out. So I've always talked about my culture and I've always tried to do it in a positive way, funny way, but, you know, I'm a comedian. I make fun of things, but I've always made sure that I made fun of everybody equally, including myself. So I make fun of, you know, Jamaicans. I make fun of Nigerians. I make fun of the English. I make fun of Americans, but I'll also make fun of myself. And sometimes Nigerians have not taken it well when I've made jokes about us they get very upset it's like the sense of humor is slightly different 
in that <laughs> a lot of Nigerians don't have the similar sense of humor that I have, having been born in Western society. So they don't get the sarcasm as well. They don't get, you know, so they're like, look, I'm making fun of us in front of white people. And I'm like, no, I'm highlighting us, but I'm also having fun with some of our idiosyncrasies. There's nothing wrong with that, but they don't always get that. You know, some cultures are willing to laugh at other cultures, but not willing to laugh at ourselves. So, a lot of, not all Nigerians, but a, a very a significant percentage just didn't get what I was doing. And I'm born outside of Nigeria. So I go back to Nigeria. I'm not considered Nigerian. And then my mum made the mistake of not teaching us the language. So that I've got that counting against me. So I knew that those Nigerians who already are offended by my humour would not be happy when they read that I went back to Nigeria and I felt a certain way about it. I felt rejected. I felt Nigerians were not welcoming to me. And I felt that there is definitely a divide between Nigerians born in Nigeria and Nigerians born outside it. But I was like, I've got to be truthful about it. It exists. It happened to me. And there, there's no way to heal that rift unless we talk about it. So, yeah, I, you know, there was, might have been a little bit of trepidation, but I was like, I was never not going to do it. I was like, you know, fuck it. This is my story. Like, I'm telling it. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I'm talking about Nigeria in that way, and, but I've also made sure that I've been very fair in the representation of all aspects of my life, including the not great stuff that I've done. <laughs> Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, and, and I think that that's what's so charming about Cat Candid, you know, which for our listeners, you know, is, is shorthand for left-handed. Yes, it is. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I I love that this is kind of framed as all these like teachable moments, mm-hmm. right? Like you you frame the book through actual proverbs, you know, because you, you talk about that being such a huge part. I mean, it's a huge part of African culture, yeah. at least as far as I understand it. My best friend is half Nigerian. My best friend is less you know, almost three decades. So, so you know, <laughs> you know spoke to her in Nigerian problems too. They, they love you know, it. actually she's so American, like she was raised in Harlem. So she's so American and, and, and like you had a, had a father who went back to Nigeria, right. like, you know, who, who left, you know, yeah, wasn't there. So it's a different, it is a totally different um, upbringing. And, and I was really intrigued on this lens you gave us into the UK mm. and, and, particularly the UK's race relations. I mean, you know, we all know 
Britain as the seat of colonialism around the world. Like, they, <laughs> I don't uh, think that's a secret. The, yeah. <laughs> you know, right. people think the Americans—they're the originators, well, the, the originators, Brits, but <laughs> we're the number one devils. Yeah, number one. <laughs> yeah, but this this really interesting. Um, I mean, a bit of a history lesson that in many ways, of course, does parallel the American existence, us also being, you know, we're the, we're the kids, mm. you know, we're, we're their kids. But everything from gentrification to kind of this, you know, this conversation of bias, you really kind of weave in in the book and you really do kind of like take these little detours of these history lessons. Why was that uh, important for you to do? Um, specifically, since I moved to America. You know, coming to America as a Black person, but Black person from somewhere else, I noticed that there was no knowledge about us. You know, I've been, I, I've been living over here for 14 years now. And when I first got here and I'd open, I'd go on stage and open my mouth and, and see the shock in Black <laughs> people's faces because they, you know, they, they, there has been a lack of education. And, it was, and I think it was, done per, it was definitely done purposely to keep us ignorant of where we are and how we are everywhere. Do you know what I mean? And um, yeah, it was just shocking that, that people just didn't know that, you know, Black people in America on the most that I met assumed that either the, if you were Black, you were either from America, from Africa, or from the Caribbean. And that was kind of it. And, and I'm like, no, we are everywhere. The, slavery and colonization. And Black people traveled before slavery. You know, there are tribes that have been living in India for thousands of years. There are full African-featured African people tribes that have been in India for thousands of years. Black people traveled. We migrated all over the world before slavery, before we were taken. So there were Black people in England before slavery way before slavery but what i was trying to say to people is that we are everywhere and we've been everywhere whether it's been by migration and travel and war and whatever or via slavery we are we are everywhere and i was like look there are black people in england there are black people in france we're in holland we're in germany we're everywhere and and there's been this especially in recent times there's been a lot of discussion about you know Black British actors coming over and taking American actors' jobs and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, here's the thing. We may have come from different places, but our experiences have been very similar. Yes, I understand the, you know, African-American descendants of slaves, but Brits and the Europeans were just as evil on their colonies in the Caribbean. Black people suffered the same, whether it was on plantations within America or plantations within the Caribbean. We've had very similar experiences. And, and I was trying to say, look, we, we, we should be as one when it comes to coming together to overthrow white supremacy. It doesn't matter where we ended up being dispersed to. We've had very similar experiences. So the whole reason of me putting that stuff in the book was going, look, We've had similar experiences where, where you would not believe how much we have in common as Black people, no matter where we are on, on this planet. So how about we come together? So, And I wanted to give that history lesson because a lot of people didn't know. A lot of people didn't know. I think that's fair. I mean, I, yeah, I, I think there's definitely something to that. And I also think, to your point, we also get so entrenched in our local identities. Yeah. I mean, I think that was why I was so intrigued by, you know, this... Uh, British history that you woke in and, and, and also the context on your own childhood, because 
it really spoke to kind of the intersectionality of that, of these identities, you know, like of being Nigerian, being British, like both of these are independent identities that in you have to kind of like coexist and, you know, um, queerness, like all yeah. of these things that, you know, womanhood, like, yeah, <laughs> like all I, these I things. I've got with all of those. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> the universe is like, bam, you're going to get all of this shit. <laughs> all of it. But, you know, speaking of creating roles, so you, you, you know, you end cack handed, uh, you know, and I, I hope this won't be a spoiler to people, but I don't think it will be. Uh, you, you end in what a lot of people who have a dream like you have had would consider the beginning, mm. um, which is kind of leading us to where we are now, where you have, you know, you are co-creator and actress on Bob Hart's Abishola, which was developed based on your stories and your characters <laughs> and you know <laughs> so you know when you talk about this whole creating creating more content yeah where we and our stories can exist you know i, I do think it's important for our our listeners if, even if they haven't watched the show yet to understand that you are not just talking you're walking that walk mm-hmm. um and of course you know cat can put me in mind of some of the things we've been seeing lately you know that have brought that black british experience more to the fore um, I'm thinking of like Steve McQueen mm. and, you know, these, these works that he's been doing, you know, um, that was just a quick thing that came to mind. He's not the only one, yeah. but um, will we be seeing this particular story of, of your very unique, <laughs> 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 you know, is there any talk about, uh, you know, since you work in, in, in Hollywood and are experiencing success there, is there any talk of moving that? Onto the screen. Oh, yeah, I've definitely had some interest from people uh, about optioning the book and turning it into something. So I definitely, at some point in the future, you're going to definitely see Cat Handed in some form as uh, probably a limited series, I think, probably on one of the streamers because it's going to be kind of edgy and I want it to be as close to factual as possible. So, yeah, uh, I'm talking right now with people about option in the book so hopefully we'll and we'll get to make it and i get to give people work because that's all that's what i'm about right now you know i've managed the door has opened a crack for me in hollywood you know and i've come through that door and i'm pulling people in behind me you know i've got black people in the writers rooms and not just writers of my background i've got african-american writers in the writers room and on the show you know, because I'm about giving work to all of us. I'm not trying to differentiate. When we were making the show, uh, I was like, Abishola has to be Nigerian. Fact, because she's the lead of the show. She has to be a dark-skinned Nigerian woman. And I fought very, fought very hard for that. Because you know how Hollywood is? You know, they have this image of what a beautiful black woman is, and it has to be light-skinned. And I was like, no, no, no. Much as I love all these actresses you're putting forward, none of them are right. It has to be a dark-skinned African woman. It has to be. And then we can mix and match the rest of the cast, because I don't mind. You know, Barry Shabaka Henry, who plays uh, Uncle Tunde, is very light-skinned. But he's a wonderful actor, and he was perfect for the part. And that's what we want. We want to mix and match and bring in actors from all parts of blackness. I want everybody to eat a piece of this cake. And that is what's happening. And, I, and I'm just pulling people in, like... You know, how I got black writers on the show was just doing a comedy show and putting my friends on the on the show without telling them. Just said, come over and do 10 minutes, you know, before I go up and headline and then bring in Chuck Lorre and bring in these wags that producers to my show. I'm not saying anything, just come and see my show. And then whenever they went, oh, we like that comedian. She was funny. Then I go, well, she writes. 
and then put them in the room together. And that's how I got people in the night zoo. So it's about helping each other and, and, and just bringing us all forward as one people. That's my thing. Listen, I'm, I'm here for that thing. I am curious, not to distract too much from the book, I am curious, obviously, the co-lead of Bob and Abishola is a white, yes. cisgender, yes. you know, head man. Did you get blowback? Did you feel like blowback from that, from the Black community in terms of... There was of- a lot of judgment when the show came out. Because one thing I remember is I did not pick... This show, this original show, was not my show idea. Okay. I had been picked. That was really the question. Yes. It was not my show idea. It wasn't my idea. I had been okay. pitching for year be- the year before the show came about. I'd been in getting into meetings of all the networks trying to pitch a TV show based on my life and my family and upbringing with, with all black characters, with a few white people sprinkled in because you've got to do that, you know. But it was with all black characters. And getting doors shut in my face left. Right and certain people were like, oh, we don't get it. The Nigerian, we don't, we don't get it. So I never got the show uh, that I was trying to pitch. No, it never got picked up. Chuck Lowry came to me out of the blue a year later. Out of the blue, uh, they found me on Google. Yes, they did. And uh, he was like, "You were having a lot of success with the internet." Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not doing enough. Yeah. So basically, <laughs> he'd been to Africa, Chuck Lowry, and travelled all around Africa and met beautiful people, and was like, "Oh, you know what?" I want to make a show where there's an African lead. It just came out of the blue. And we loved the actor, Billy Gardell, who he'd worked with on Mike and Molly. So he was trying to think of another show idea around Billy Gardell. That's how it came about. But then he was like, I don't want to make another Mike and Molly. I want to make a show where maybe the love interest isn't a black African woman. And that's how it was an idea from Chuck Lowe's mind. It was nothing to do with me. This idea was in his brain before he even met me. And then, but they were like, well, we can't write this by ourselves because we don't know any black African people. We don't understand the culture. We need a black female comedian of Nigerian descent to help us create this thing. They went to Google and just typed into Google, Nigerian female comics. And I was the best of what came up because I am the best. I'm going to say it. I came up so they brought me over I was living in New York very happily and they brought me over for a meeting and this is how the show came about so they brought me on initially as a consultant I turned it down initially because I was like what the hell is it a consultant on all things African this sounds exploitative and weird but uh, luckily, when I'm being dumb, I have a younger brother who'll call me up from England and scream at me for two hours. And a best friend who'll also... So basically, they're like, you're an idiot. This is an opportunity. Don't miss out on this. So, yeah, basically, I was born as a consultant. But once I got in the room and started writing the characters and creating them, and like they realised that they needed me to make the show. And then they bumped me up to co-create and producer. And obviously, I wrote myself in because I want all the checks. But <laughs> it wasn't originally my idea. It was an idea that... Chuck had, and I was brought in to consult on that. And then that's how I brought my own stories that I'd been pitching before. So it took a white, wealthy, well-respected man in Hollywood to give me the green light to go, actually, you know, because I've been pitching these Nigerian stories. Nobody wanted them. Then Chuck Lowry comes and goes, I think I'm going to do a story with Nigerians. And everybody's like, oh, well, that's a wonderful idea. Let's do that. And that's what it took. And it's irritating, but it's also, I'm just glad that he, in his ultimate wisdom, 
and smartness as uh, the best sitcom producer we, we have in current times was not arrogant and didn't go, you know what, we can do this. We know black people. We can write this. We don't need. He actually went, no, let's bring someone in who knows the culture and can write these jokes and make sure that we're not racist. We're not, you know, we're not doing colonial horrible. So I'm glad he did that. And he basically, he has changed my life. But back to your question, was not my idea. Uh, when the show first came out, there was a lot of judgment from within the black community. People going, oh my God, look at this beautiful African woman with this big old white guy. This is just some. And, but when I came into the room to help create the show, I was like, here's the thing. If I'm going to be involved in this project, this show isn't going to be no white savior bullshit. I said, she's going to have her own job, her own money. She ain't going to need him. He's going to have to work to win her love. It's not going to be, oh, look at this poor little African woman being saved by this rich wealthy. It's not going to happen that way. She's going to have her own stuff going on and he has to do her work for her. They are going to be equal partners in this relationship. I am not going to have my name attached to any white savior crap. And I was like, you have to listen to me when I say that this isn't right. You have to listen to me. Otherwise, this show is dead in the water. And, you know, God love them. They did. For the most part, they listened to most 90% of the things that I've told them. And uh, it's worked out. It, you know, it has worked out. The show has been renewed. Um, and I guess, you know, I'm going to ask the last question because, you know, I, I think because I personally would love to see Cat Cannon come to the screen. And I know you have uh, based a character on your mother before yes should should cat can make it to the screen would you would you consider playing your mother nope <laughs> not, not touching it no, when, uh, when, yeah i mean yeah based you know a lot of the characters of bob hart's abishola are based on different yeah. facets of my mom's personality you know if you watch it please watch the show people because it is really yes it really is a good show <laughs> you know because we're a multi-cam and it's made by Chuck Lorre of Big Bang Theory and Two and a Half Men. And we're on CBS, which, let's be honest, is not a channel that is renowned for, for catering for Black audiences. So we are fighting an uphill battle. But when you watch the show, you'll be pleasantly surprised at how we get a lot of good subject matter into this comedy. Like on episode three, we were talking about the chasm between Black people born in Africa and Black... On episode three of season one, we booked that. I managed to get that subject in there and, and slide that by the CBS censors. So we're doing really good subject matter in this sitcom. We're not the cool kids like the Insecures and the 20s. and not. We're not considered the cool kids, but we are doing great work. We're doing great work. And we're getting to an audience of people who may never have even met a Black person or an African before. And we are opening their minds because this show came out on the last legs of the Trump era. So we are changing hearts and minds across America because we ain't preaching to the converted. Like we ain't, yeah, we ain't, no, on, that's true. We ain't on HBO. Not on CBS, you're not. Yeah, yeah. We ain't on HBO. <laughs> we ain't on BET. We are on CBS and we are changing hearts and minds. And I think it's an excellent show. So people should definitely give it a chance and keep it going. Well, it is an opportunity for people to get more exposure to your storytelling. And I hope they will also get exposure to it through Cat Candid, which I found so entertaining. Thank you so, so much. Well, I'm not. I'm not playing my mum. I'm not playing my mum. <laughs> all right. All I'm right. I thought, I'd, do, I thought I'd pitch it. I thought I'd pitch it. But uh, <laughs> thank you so much for coming oh, and playing with us today. No, thanks for it was having an absolute me. Absolute pleasure. And uh, you know, I know you didn't think you were going to write a book, but if you write another one, come on back and see us. In the meantime, 
keep it lit and thank you for hanging out with us thank you for having me thank you so much okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you i can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or i can hop into my all-new hyundai santa fe and hit the road With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The Rip Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Ryan Allen. Our theme song was penned by yours truly and producer Scott Jacoby. If you like the show and want to help us out, please, please, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really, really helps us out. And we appreciate your feedback so much. And if you have any thoughts or feedback, you can find me on Twitter at Maisha, that's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A, and at Maisha Kai on Instagram. Now, this is the point in the show where we usually talk about, you know, a little bit about what we're currently reading. And frankly, I've read so many great books this year. I'm now starting to think about what will I be giving uh, now that the holiday is coming about. You know, we're in the holiday season. You know, not everybody has time to read. So why don't we deviate from that just a little bit? You know, I'm thinking, tis the season for self-care. We are now almost two years into this whole, whatever you want to call it, panini press. (laughs) And, you know, I think a little self-care is in order. And I think it's about what that looks like for you. But if you haven't already, you know, in this season of, of... change. I'm looking at Black and Green, which is an all green, mostly black owned marketplace that I love that was founded by Dr. Christian Henderson. And I'm going to be in there, you know, kind of searching for some ways to kind of reset and recharge this holiday season as well as keep my health high. Although, you know, those boosters are out there, guys. Feel free. (laughs) Um, But that's Black and Green. That's BLK plus Green, G-R-N, you know, because we're, we're hip like that. You should check it out if you haven't already. And until then, that's it for this week. You know, I, I'm going to go read some things, but I think I might wait till more of the holidays. But in the meantime, we always thank you for listening and we will see you next week. And you know what to do. Keep it lit.